We'll read together from the Holy Scriptures three short passages beginning in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, we will read here, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shalt be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now we turn to the last chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28. We read the last few verses of the chapter, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, And lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Lastly, we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And we read verses 19 through 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus, and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosesoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosesoever sins ye retain, they are retained. The basis of these passages of Scripture and the entire Word of God, the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31 explains to us the biblical concept of the keys of the kingdom. 
in Lord's Day 31. This morning we consider the first two questions and answers. Question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline. Or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, When, according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them, both in this life and in the life to come. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching of Lord's Day 31 on the keys of kingdom packs a whole lot of biblical teaching into one Lord's Day. We have here in Lord's Day 31 a a big chunk of what in theology is called ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Lord's Day 31 explains what the Bible teaches concerning the power, the government, and the mission of the church. Christ has redeemed a people to himself by his precious blood. He has given his spirit, who by the word gathers that redeemed people into a new community of faith, the church of Christ. And as we read Jesus' own words in Matthew 16, he says, I build my church. Jesus himself is the foundation, the chief cornerstone of that church. In Matthew 16, Jesus also speaks to his disciples, and in speaking to them, he speaks to the church of all ages, and he indicates that the church that he builds, he also gives a certain power, a certain authority to, which he describes figuratively as the keys of the kingdom. I give unto you the keys of the kingdom. And Jesus says that with these keys... Things are bound or loosed on earth. And the binding or loosing on earth holds true in heaven. What are these keys of the kingdom? Jesus does not explicitly tell us in Matthew 16, but we can gather from the rest of Scripture what the keys are. And that's what the Catechism has done. And the first question and answer in Lord's Day 31, it explains that there are two keys of the kingdom, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and the exercise of Christian discipline. And the Catechism didn't just make that up. The Catechism gathered that from the Bible passages that we read as well as others that we did not read. In the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives his great commission to the church. 
And in John 20, Jesus also commissions his disciples. He sends them out. And what does he send them out to do? He sends them out to proclaim the gospel, to be his witnesses unto the ends of the earth, to teach and to make disciples of all nations. That's the mission of the church. That's the key power of the church then. The church brings the gospel and it is the proclamation of the gospel then that is the first and chief key of the kingdom. That's how the kingdom is opened up to those who believe and shut against those who do not believe. Matthew 18, a passage that we did not read, makes clear that Christian discipline is the other key. In Matthew 18, Jesus explains in brief form the process of Christian discipline after he has stated to his disciples that he gives them the keys of the kingdom. And so it is very clear from the scriptures that the two keys of the kingdom, a certain power that God has given to his church, are these two, the proclamation of the gospel and the exercise of Christian discipline. And each of these keys has a double function. Opening to believers and shutting to unbelievers. And through the use of these keys, when they are used properly according to the command of King Jesus, the good shepherd king cares for his sheep and builds them And so that's the truth that we are going to begin looking at this morning, focusing on the first of these two keys that Jesus has given to his church. The key power of gospel preaching. That is our theme. The key power of gospel preaching. We're going to start by looking more generally at the idea of key power. We're going to look at the nature of this key power that Jesus has given to his church. Then in points 2 and 3, we'll look more specifically at the first key. First, looking at how the key of gospel preaching opens the kingdom to believers. And then lastly, how the key power of gospel preaching shuts the kingdom to unbelievers. Before looking at the first key of the kingdom, let's have an overview, a brief overview of The Bible's teaching about the nature or the character of key power. That is, the the spiritual power that God has given to the church to exercise these two keys of the kingdom. What sort of authority does God give to the church to do the work that God calls the church to do? What sort of power is key power? There are four words that we're going to use in the first point to help us get a good general view of the nature of this power, this authority that Christ gives to his church. First, it is stewardly. Second, it is spiritual. Third, it is ministerial. And fourth, it is declarative. We're going to go through those four words briefly. And that describes the nature of key power. The nature of the authority that God has given to his church. Stewardly, spiritual, ministerial, and declarative. Starting with stewardly. The power and authority that Christ gives to his church is stewardly. That, it, that is, it is the kind of power and authority that a steward possesses. A steward is a servant. 
A steward is a special servant that is given a certain measure of authority and power over his master's goods, his master's household. A steward is not a man who may do what he thinks is best or exercise power and authority according to his own discretion and will, but he is beholden unto his master who entrusts his possessions and his household to the steward. And the steward uses the power he receives from the master and employs it precisely as the master commands him to use it. That's the idea of a steward. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 speaks of those who are called into the ministry of the church as the stewards of the mysteries of God. There Paul is speaking about the gospel ministry, but it can more broadly apply to the the three offices that Christ has instituted in his church whom he calls to do the official work of the church, not the only work of the church, there is much work of the church. There is the work that all of the members of the church do in the organic life of the church as witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, as prophets, priests, and kings under the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so very important, let that never be minimized. There is the work of all believers, and then there is also the the official work of the church that the whole church does through the instituted offices. And now, those instituted offices are stewards. That's how they are to view themselves. And that's the kind of authority and power given to the offices. It is a stewardly power. What that means then is all of the church's authority and power is not its own. It does not arise from down here. It is not fixed in any human being. But it comes from Jesus Christ. And Christ alone. The church is not independent. The church may not exercise the keys of the kingdom according to her own discretion, her own wisdom, or according to the dictates of any given office bearer, but rather the church must exercise the keys of the kingdom in strict accordance with the word of God and the command of Jesus Christ. And the catechism makes that point when it begins, answer 84 this way, when according to the command of Christ. Christ alone is the key Holder. Revelation 3.7 says Jesus Christ holds the key of David. Revelation 21 says Jesus Christ holds the key to the bottomless pit. He is the only key holder. Matthew 28 verse 18. Jesus says that to him is given all power in heaven and earth. And built into that word power there is the idea of authority. All authority and power belongs to Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 22 says that Jesus Christ is head over all things to the church. Jesus has absolute universal sovereignty, power, and authority. And therefore, every exercise of church power through the use of the keys of the kingdom must be in strict accordance with the word and command of the Master. Those who are called to use the keys, the office bearers put in the church, are but servants and stewards of the king. They must always see themselves that way and only that way. Ultimately, it is King Jesus alone who exercises the keys through his stewards. 
to use the language of, the parab- of a parable of Jesus, Jesus is that master of the house who has gone away on a long journey. He's coming back on the day of his return, but until he comes back, he entrusts the keys to his church. But he says to his church, use the keys this way, only in accordance with my word and in no other way. And that's the calling of the church, to employ the keys, to preach the gospel and to exercise Christian discipline as Jesus commands. The church does that by calling and sending pastors and missionaries to teach and to baptize, to administer, to administer the preached gospel and the visible word of the sacraments. And the church does that by ordaining elders to be overseers and watchmen who exercise the key of discipline. That's implied too in Matthew 28, by the way, when Jesus gives the church the commission to teach. There's the key of preaching. But implied in making disciples of all nations is the key of discipline. Part of discipleship is Christian discipline. The whole church, this is worth emphasizing, the whole church witnesses, teaches, and disciplines through the instituted offices. We have it backwards if we think that the church exists for the offices and that the offices really are the church. That's ultimately the Roman Catholic view. Rome teaches that the clergy are the church. The Reformed and biblical conception is the reverse. The church is the people. And all of the callings that come to the church from Jesus Christ, the people perform. The offices are simply the God-ordained organs through which the church as a whole performs her official work. The church preaches the gospel through the gospel ministry. The church exercises oversight and discipline through the overseers that are the elders. The church exercises mercy towards the poor and the needy in her midst through the diaconate. That's the biblical and reformed conception of church power. It's stewardly power. That's that in the first place. Secondly, the power that Christ gave to his church is strictly spiritual in nature. Here, the contrast must be made between earthly and physical power. The church has spiritual power. It is of a moral, ethical character. The spiritual power of the church is nothing more and nothing less than the keys of the kingdom. That's the power of the church. The church is not called to be a political party. The church is not called to take up arms in the cause of righteousness. The church is called to exercise the spiritual power that is the preaching of the gospel to all and sundry and the spiritual power of Christian admonition and discipline within her own ranks. That is the spiritual power Christ has given to the church. Ultimately, her power is only in the word. That's the one tool of the church. The word preached, the word administered in the sacraments, and the word applied in Christian discipline. And ultimately, all of the work that we do in the organic life of the church, the power of it is the word. When Christians minister to one another, They do so in accordance with the word. They bring the word. They bring the light of the word to shine in places of darkness. They bring the comfort of the gospel to bear upon the life of an afflicted brother or sister. The power of the church is not politics or anything earthly. The power of the church is the word of the gospel. 
And that's what the church must be centered on. She must not be distracted by all of the things that the world says are much better, much more effective, much more powerful to solve our human problems. That's not to say that we may not use the good gifts that God gives in the world or make use of the learning that is available in the world. That's not the case. We may use every good gift of God with spiritual discernment, of course. But the point is, the church's power What she's called to bring is the Word of God. The Word. Bring that Word to bear on the lives of people. Here we see the essential difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom. It's the dominion of God's grace that starts in the hearts of elect believers and is destined to encompass all of the redeemed creation in the new heavens and the new earth. That kingdom is essentially different than the kingdoms of this world. It is built by entirely different means. As Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why my disciples don't start an armed insurrection outside of your judgment hall. And that's why the one disciple who drew his sword, Jesus immediately said, put up thy sword. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. The point is, the kingdom of God is not advanced by earthly means. It's not advanced by the sword. The only sword that we have is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is a sword that doesn't cut flesh, but is a sword that cuts into the heart. It is as a double-edged sword. It is a powerful weapon as 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual. They are mighty for the tearing down of the strongholds of sin. Christ gave his church not a sword but keys. Keys. A completely different power. Thus the church doesn't take up the sword. In its punishment of evildoers. That's that's the state's responsibility. The state is a different institution. That God ordained. To keep order in human society. And God gave the sword to the state. And calls the state. To use physical punishments. To deter crime. And to enforce its laws. So that there is good order. And decency in society. That's the state's responsibility. The church doesn't wield a sword. The church doesn't wield physical power that way. The church doesn't punish. And that's important. Even Christian discipline should not be construed as punishment. Christian discipline is not punitive, but it is corrective. It aims at the glory of God and the salvation of the sinner. Its ultimate aim is restoration should God be pleased to use the key in that way. The church's power is not a punitive power, but even when brought to discipline, And even when the church's power is exercised in the preaching of the gospel for the rebuke and admonition of sin, it is not a punishment, but it is correction aimed at restoration. The church's power is spiritual power, and the church errs grievously if she ever forgets that and begins dabbling in earthly, carnal exercises of power. Third, The stewardly spiritual power of the church is ministerial power. Minister is simply the Latin word 
for servant. Servant power. That's the church's power. It's a power and an ordination from God Himself to serve and to minister. The biblical foundation for this is very clear. That's what Jesus came to do. And Jesus is the King of the church. Think of Jesus' words in in Mark 10. Mark 10, beginning at verse 42. Jesus calls His disciples together after they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest among them. And Jesus says in Mark 10, starting at verse 42, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But it, but so shall it not be among you. Jesus there is drawing a radical distinction between the world's conception of power and authority and the Christian conception of power and authority. Jesus is not denying the existence of power and authority. No, that is real. And God gives power and authority to his church. He gives certain power and authority to certain persons who he puts into certain positions and offices. But Jesus is saying the Christian conception of power ought to be completely different from the world's. Look at the Gentiles. Look at the world. Power is exercised as a coercive force down upon someone. Compelling them to do your will. Power is used in a tyrannical, a rough, even abusive way. Exercising lordship upon and over. Pressing down. Enforcing obedience with an iron fist. So shall it not be among you, Jesus says. But, but, whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how the king of the church exercises his very real authority and power. Indeed, Jesus, the king to whom all authority and power is given, exercises that power and authority towards his people, not as a dominating, crushing, oppressive lord, demanding obedience and punishing harshly, but he came as a minister, as a servant. He gave his life as a ransom for many, washing the feet of his disciples, washing their souls with his shed blood. He was a ministerial master, a servant king. The good shepherd. And if that's the king of the church, That's how all church authority and power is to be exercised. It's real. It's authority. It's power. But it is to be exercised with a servant's heart. And in a servant's manner. With true Christian love. With gentleness and meekness. Befitting the gentle and meek Savior. The church when she wields the keys. Does not wield them with an iron fist but wields them the way the good shepherd wields his rod and staff. 
ministerial power. That means when the church brings the word and her teaching and her preaching and her discipline, and that word comes as the power of God, it comes sharply at times and must come sharply in its teaching, in its rebuke, in its refutation of error. Yet nonetheless, that bringing of the word must not have its, as its goal destruction with an iron fist. Must not have as its goal the aggrandizement of man, but must have as its goal the salvation of souls should the Lord be pleased to use His Word in such a way. It must be a Word always seasoned with the graciousness of Christ and expressing the spirit of Christian love. Because anything without love is worse than useless. It is a clanging symbol. And that ought to live in the consciousness of the church as she preaches the gospel, as she exercises Christian discipline, as she wields the keys of the kingdom. She is not to act like a Gentile Lord, but is to employ ecclesiastical power and authority after the pattern and example of King Jesus Himself. Ministerial. With a servant's humble heart. With words and actions seasoned with grace. Imbued in Christian love. And even the sharpest admonition. Can be seasoned with grace. And come in Christian love. Lastly. The kind of power and authority that God gives to the church in the keys of the kingdom is declarative. A declarative power. And here the distinction is between declaring something and causing something. The church's authority and power is not causative. What I mean by that is, the church isn't, act, isn't the one who actually makes things happen in the hearts and lives of people. That causative power belongs only to Christ the King, the key holder. The church is called to preach the gospel and apply the word and administer the sacraments and administer discipline. But the church's work is not what actually makes that word effective. Only Christ makes the word effective by His Holy Spirit. The church preaches, but the power doesn't reside in the man who preaches. It doesn't reside in the act of preaching, but the power resides in the good shepherd who is pleased to use that preaching however he will. Whether to open a heart and soften it, or to harden a heart to judge a man. Power is not in the messenger. The power is not in the instrument. The power is in the king of the church. He alone causes. In the exercise of the keys, the church declares. The power of the keys is to make an an authoritative declaration in the name of King Jesus. And when these declarations are in accord with the command of Christ and the word of God... They come with the full weight of Christ's authority. That's why Jesus says, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. 
The declarations that the church makes in the preaching of the gospel and in her work of Christian discipline when in harmony with the scriptures holds true in heaven. And that's why the preaching and the discipline has weight to it. It's the exercise of a power, a very real power that Christ has given to his church. Church is not infallible. That's why when the the power of preaching or discipline is misused, it does not bind or loose. But when the preaching or discipline is in accord with the word of God and with the will of God and done as the command of Christ commands it to be done, it is a real power. And what is declared here holds true in the halls and in the courtroom of heaven. So we must understand that the power of the keys to open and to shut the kingdom is a declarative power. It declares what Jesus does. So for example, in John 20 verse 23, when when Jesus says, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Jesus is not saying... My church now has the power of itself to forgive people's sins. The Pharisees were not wrong in Mark 2 verse 7 when they said, Who can forgive sins but God only? Well, they were right. Only God can forgive sins. Their error in that passage after they witnessed the healing of the paralytic, was they did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God who had authority to forgive sins. But God alone forgives sins. Jesus Christ, as the key bearer, alone forgives sins. The church doesn't forgive. What the church does in the preaching of the gospel and in the exercise of Christian discipline is she declares what Jesus does. And when she makes a declaration in harmony with the word of God, that declaration comes with all the weight of Jesus' own authority. And so the power of the keys is to declare this. God forgives all your sins, you who believe in the promise of the gospel. And that's not just some man saying something nice. When As the catechism says, it's declared and publicly testified to all and every believer. That's a declaration by a messenger of the king to believers. The king pardons you. And that declaration comes with the full weight of the king's authority. And the preaching of the gospel also says... To those who do not believe. To those who do not repent. Your sins are retained. The church isn't the one retaining sins. Only God may do that. But the church in preaching the gospel is declaring what Christ does. And giving that necessary warning to all who do not believe and do not repent. God retains your sins and you will be judged. So long as you remain unconverted. And so we see in some that these four words help us have a good understanding of the true nature of ecclesiastical power and authority. What kind of power is the key power? It is a stewardly power. 
It is a spiritual power. It is a ministerial power. It is a declarative power. And the church as the steward of these keys is to exercise it only ever according to the command of Christ and with the mind of Christ. Now we come to the first key. The first and main key of the kingdom is the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Jesus himself indicates that this key has two functions. It looses or it binds. It opens and it shuts. It remits or retains sin. So here in the second point we're going to look at the first function of the first key. Namely the opening of the kingdom to believers. How does the preaching of the gospel open the kingdom to believers? And here it's very important we remember that fourth word declarative. Not causative. The sermon this morning is not what causes the kingdom to open to anyone. But the sermon this morning, if it is in harmony with the word of God, and it declares the gospel, it declares what Jesus does as the key holder who opens his kingdom to those who believe in him. The gospel is God's good news. For poor sinners. The gospel is God's good news announcing salvation. It is the good tidings of great joy that God has sent his son into the world. Who has made man for us men. And our salvation. And that he redeems his chosen people. Through his substitutionary suffering. And his atoning death on the cross of Calvary. And that he has become the new and living way. Into the kingdom. And that all who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. And now, the preaching of the gospel opens the kingdom in the heart of the believer. The preaching of the gospel as it sets forth Christ as the sole object of our faith. The preaching of the gospel as it proclaims what Jesus has declared has done. And the preaching of the gospel as it declares what that death means for God's elect people. And as it declares what that work of Christ means for those who believe the preaching opens the kingdom of heaven. It declares that Jesus admits into his kingdom All those who forsake working for righteousness. All those who forsake their sins. And instead cast themselves wholly upon his mercy. Trusting in him by a true and living faith. All those who believe in him. Christ opens the doors of his kingdom to. And the preaching of the gospel declares that. This is the word of the king. This is the word of the king to you believing people. Because of Christ's merits, heaven is open. And you who are united to Christ, you are on that living way into the kingdom. The preaching of the gospel then is the means by which God kindles faith and strengthens faith in our hearts. That goes back to Lord's Day 25. The the preaching is a means of grace and the key power of the church. The Spirit uses 
the preaching to turn our hearts to Christ. To rivet our faith upon Him. And as our hearts look to Christ and as our faith is riveted upon Him, the doors of the kingdom open in our consciences. Whenever you hear the gospel and embrace its promise with a believing heart, you feel heaven's doors open wide. That's the key power of preaching. It declares Christ and what Christ has done and the meaning of what Christ has done for all who believe. And so to briefly apply this, we need the gospel preaching of Christ crucified. It's the food for our souls. God calls us to be a people who are in the word. And there are so many ways to be in the word that are important. Meditating upon the word. Attending Bible study with our fellow members of the church. Devotional reading of the word and all of those are important and so good for our spiritual life. But God does something special in the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel message is heralded, when it is proclaimed, when it is publicly declared and testified. There's a message from the king in the gospel when it is preached. And it declares to all who believe, heaven is open to you. Because of what Christ has done for you. and Whether you believe the gospel for the first time. Or whether you embrace it yet again with a believing heart this morning. The gospel pressed upon your heart brings such relief, does it not? It releases, it sets free, it quiets the accusations of conscience. The weight of guilt that perhaps you carried this week is lifted. Peace fills the soul. Joy wells up within. And that's the word of God to you, believer, this morning. This is the word of God to the repentant believer this morning. Your sins are forgiven. All of them. Pardoned and heaven's doors are open to you. And not one of your sins can close those doors. Not one of those sins can keep those doors shut. You are covered in the blood of Christ. And there is no sin too great for Christ to lift and carry away. Even the thief on the cross, his lifetime of sins could not stop the doors of heaven opening. Be comforted, believer, this morning. This is God's word to you. This is the key. Opening that door in your conscience. Assuring you. You are forgiven. For Jesus' sake. But the king, or rather the key, has another function. And that's where we conclude this morning. The key of gospel preaching is also used sovereignly by Christ the King, by His Spirit, to shut out unbelievers and those who refuse to turn from their sins. The key of the gospel has this function. It opens the door to those who believe. It testifies to believers that their sins are forgiven. But the gospel does not say that to the impenitent unbeliever. The gospel says, so long as you are in unbelief and so long as you are unconverted, the wrath of God abides upon you. 
Jesus is the rock of salvation, but Jesus is also the rock of offense. His word is a savor of life unto life to them that believe and of death unto death to those who disbelieve and refuse to repent. And so the preaching of the gospel at the same time functions as a key that shuts the kingdom. The preaching of the gospel declares and publicly testifies not only that sins are forgiven to those who belong to Christ and trust in Him, but that the sins of those who reject Him and refuse to reject their sins, their sins are retained. And so the gospel has a word for the unbeliever. And the gospel has a word for the impenitent. And the word for them is repent. Sorrow in a godly way over your sins and turn from your sin and in true faith turn unto Jesus Christ. For unbelievers and all such as do not sincerely repent, you are exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation. And this part of the gospel message must sound forth both from the pulpit and on the mission field as a public testimony by which man will be judged. Yes, God's general revelation in creation is sufficient to hold man without excuse. But all who hear the gospel will be judged according to what they do with that gospel and what they do with the Christ revealed in that gospel. Jesus in the gospel puts To every man, the very question he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And everyone who hears the gospel will answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Those who reject the gospel, persist in impenitent sin, will be judged. In this life and the next. So we see the gospel preaching must not only proclaim the promise That all who believe shall not perish but have everlasting life. But must also declare and publicly testify the righteous judgment of God. And warn all men. So that the seriousness is laid before all men. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ you shall perish. If you do not sincerely repent you shall be condemned. As long as you continue in an unconverted life. God will judge you in this life and the next. Promise and warning must both be preached. The gospel is meant to comfort the truly distressed. But the gospel and its preaching must also distress the comfortable. That is, those who are comfortable in their sins. And so some concluding applications. Once again, believers, be comforted in Christ. The gospel declares that the kingdom is open to you. Your sins are pardoned. Let the call and warning of the gospel not prompt you to doubt or undue terror, but let it prompt you to renewed diligence in daily conversion and the ever-deepening repentance toward God. But all who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and repent of their sins, take heart. The gospel declares to you, forgiven. 
But to the spiritual sloth, or anyone just going through the motions because it's what's expected, or how you fit in into the culture into which you've been born, wake up! That's not true faith. True faith is heartfelt knowledge of God, confidence in Christ, a vital reliance upon Him for the salvation of your whole being. Believe in Him and turn from your sin. Cultural Christianity is not saving faith. Mere historical faith is not true faith. To the spiritually sleepy, the gospel says, Awake! You cannot sleep your way into the kingdom. But cast yourself wholeheartedly upon Christ, the only Savior. And the gospel is very direct to any who are unconverted and, or knowingly impenitent. Just as the gospel speaks so beautifully and directly to repentant believers this morning, Lord's Day 31 demands that the gospel, the key of the kingdom, be exercised in a very direct way to any who are unbelieving or impenitent. Walking in sin knowingly yet refusing to repent. For such persons, as long as you continue in that obstinate refusal, in that obstinate unbelief, in that obstinate impenitence, the word of God to you is not, is not, don't worry, you're fine, sin, grace will abound. The word of God to you this morning is, you stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, except you repent. God will judge you in this life and the next, unless you repent. And so all who live in penitent sin and hatred against God or their neighbor, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn. Cast yourself upon Him who alone is the Savior from sin. The gospel must distress the comfortable because there is nothing so destructive as being comfortable in our sin. Letting ourselves be lulled to sleep thinking that we can sin and grace will abound. The holy God is not one to be trifled with. His gospel may not be used as a cover, a cloak, an excuse to keep on sinning and clutching that pet sin to my bosom. So many ways. People do that. They put on a Christian face. They do all the right things. And because they do all of these things, they think that they can keep this sin in their bosom. Sometimes horrible sins. The man who puts on such a shining, beaming face and makes himself look like the example Christian, and yet he is a tyrant behind closed doors to his wife and family over and over and over again. The word of the gospel to such a man is not, you're fine. The word of the gospel is, repent or you will perish. The man who goes through all of his religious exercises and puts a great face on, and yet he lives a double life, prays. Upon other people. Or even children. And hides it behind a cloak of secrecy. 
The word of God to such a man is, repent or you will perish. Do not think that the gospel of grace excuses you. The gospel's call to you is turn. Do not remain unconverted. And this is deadly, deadly serious. The gospel shuts the kingdom to all such. Except they repent and believe. And so the key must be sharply exercised in both of its functions. Bringing that comforting word to the sincerely distressed. And also distressing the comfortable in their sins. Back to the believer. Or to the man whose heart is pricked by the word. Such that genuine sorrow is welling up in his or her heart. Gospel is good news. It says to the believer, it says to the repentant sinner, you will never be cast away. The Pharisee will. But every publican who cries to God, God be merciful to me a sinner, and who is sincere in that faith and repentance, Jesus will never cast such a person away. Jesus calls, Come unto me, all ye who are weary, weary from the battle against sin, heavy laden. Come to me, I will give you rest. And all whom the Father draws to me by the gospel, I will in no wise cast out, but I will lift him up on the last day. Let us all repent and believe, put our trust in. In Christ Jesus. Take in our hearts this day and into the week ahead that precious promise of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. The doors of heaven open wide. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for the key power of gospel preaching, and we pray that Thou wilt cause it to be exercised faithfully and profitably in our midst, so that the gospel may go forward to comfort poor, distressed, sinful people such as we are, who trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And may the the power of the gospel preaching also wake up the spiritual sleepy. And may it also be a power that turns unconverted sinners and impenitent sinners from the way of destruction unto the way of life. Use thy word, Father, as only thou art able. May it be a sweet savor of life unto life to thy people. May it also be an expression of thy just judgment upon all who are not thy own. Who is sufficient for these things? May we ever look to thee and rest in thee and thy sovereignty in these things. The God of our salvation. This we ask in Jesus name. Amen.